Hello and welcome to another episode of the Godly Grunt Podcast, where we teach soldiers to be better Christians and Christians to be better soldiers. I'm your host, as always, John Cooper, and uh, we've been going through a spiritual warfare series. We're going to take a few weeks off of that, and we're going to do something a little different. Um, what we're going to do is I am a, an intern pastor at the Niagara Community Church in Niagara Falls, New York. And uh, what we're going to do in these next two episodes is uh, I preached, excuse me, I preached uh, two sermons, part one and part two of a ser- of a series called Biblical Battle Lines, and it's out of Mark 10, 1 through 16, as Biblical Battle Lines um, from Mark 10, 1 through 16. And um, so what I'm going to do is I figured these next two episodes it would be uh, a good idea to um, just put the sermons on and uh, you can listen to the sermons. They're kind of on spiritual warfare, but it's also on what are going on in our culture around us, things of that nature. So I am going to, that's what we're going to do. So before we get into it, I'll just do, you can find us on Facebook on instagram we are new on apple podcast if that's something you're into if you're listening on another site and you want to go over there um our website is the godly grunts 116.wixsite.com slash my dash site uh but i will put a link to that in the show notes so that way it's easier for you and because that's as we were made fun of on the carpe fide podcast <laughs> for having such a long uh url but um yeah if you i hope you guys enjoy and uh you have a oh shoot i almost it's been a while so (laughs) sorry i hope you guys enjoy and uh climb for his glory time to break glass well good morning uh it's great to see you again this sunday morning um, we have been going through the book of Mark uh, here on Sunday mornings, and as we are doing so, uh, we are seeing the school of discipleship, especially on the way to Jerusalem. And as being a disciple of Christ, uh, we need to be ready to pick up our cross and follow him. We need to be ready to pick up a cross because being a disciple and holding fast the word of God will often put us in opposition with the world. We will battle. And as warriors of the cross, those who are striving to please Christ, we will fight at battle lines. Lines that are drawn where we need to hold our ground. And do not, and to do it, we need to fight with no fear. We are told to have no fear in this, all throughout the scriptures, most notably in Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus says, And do not fear those who can kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him, that is Christ, who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. We are told constantly to fear God, not man. And in the early church, the apostles live like this, challenging their cultures and leadership around them in, the, in the very every institution. Early church leaders and those of the Reformation embodied the same apostolic attitude, having a man, John Knox, where it was said at his graveside, quote, here lies a man who feared no flesh. We are to have a no-fear attitude in our lives. 
And as we look at our passage today, we cannot help but see that what Jesus is saying would be canceled or labeled as hate speech today. Jesus' words, though at the time were most likely not that controversial, would today get him in deep trouble. He defines how God made us and his purpose for us. These are battle lines that our culture has drawn against the living, active, and holy God. And we, as believers who confess the name of Jesus Christ, must be willing to stand firm on what? His word. So, as we go through this passage over the next two weeks, I want us to consider these battles that we must fight. And the first battle is the battle for truth. The second is the battle for biblical sexuality. The third is the battle for our families. And fourth is the battle for our children. It's the battle for truth, biblical sexuality, the family, and our children. And before we get into this, I want to quickly highlight three things. First is that we are at war with the world around us, not individual people. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces, against of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We are at war with the world around us, which is why God later describes in Ephesians 6 the spiritual armor. Second, is that Satan and his demonic forces are in control of our culture. When Jesus, the tempter, Satan, or excuse me, when Jesus is tempted by Satan, he offers him what? The nations, because he is in control of them. He is described as the prince and power of the air. And we see throughout scripture, and especially in Job, that Satan is influencing rulers and men to do evil things. Satan is influencing our culture and easing them away from God. It is he who we battle. And thirdly, we are on offense. Matthew 16, we see when, when, ta when talking about the church, Jesus says, that, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are defensive in nature. As we fulfill the Great Commission, we are going, we are going through the world, crushing Satan's grip on people through the proclamation of the gospel. We are freeing people through the power of Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit from their slavery to sin. We are also teaching and proclaiming to all people to, quote, observe all I have commanded you. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but divinely powerful for tearing down strongholds. As we tear down speculations and every lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obedience to Christ and ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is fulfilled. We must bring our culture to conformity to Christ. And there is no other way to do that than with the truth. And this brings us to our first point, and that is the battle line for truth. Mark 10, 1 through 3. It says, And standing up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, crowds gathering around him. And according to his custom, he once began to teach them. He once more began to teach them. And some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered them, What did Moses command you? The Pharisees come to Jesus with the question of divorce. This is the 
topic we are going to cover over these two sermons. But right now I would like to, to focus on the point of how we handle these battles that we face in our culture. Jesus is confronted about the topic of the day. And what was the first thing he do? He goes to the word of God. When we face any sort of problem, controversy, or confusion, our first reaction should be to go to God's word and see what he says. This is our standard of truth, not culture. There have been some years of relative peace here in America between the Bible and Christianity. And most people have accepted, believed on a moral level what we believe about the social issues, for instance, sexuality. But we have rapidly reached a point where what the Bible says and what our culture says are different. This is a battle line. And we must hold to what is true, and that is in the scriptures, not what the news is saying. And in any war, you understand that some battles are more important. And they are over territory or battle lines where we cannot fail or we lose the whole war. Just to use the example of World War II is the Battle of Normandy. It was a no-fail mission, both sides. For us to win meant to advance into France. For the Germans, it meant to defend that line. And as they saw, when they lost that line, they lost the war. But the Battle of Hurricane Forest was an equally, if not more, gruesome battle. Yet, its importance on the grand scheme of things was not that impactful. We must understand that the battle of truth is that most important battle line. Like D-Day, you can't win other battles without winning this one. If you surrender the fact that the Bible is the inerrant and infallible word of God, then what leg do you have to stand on? And as a Christian, this book is not only your source of truth. If it's not your source of truth, then what do you have to stand on in time of trial and testing? Rather, if you believe and search the scripture more and more and the stronger and more rooted in the truth, you will be. You can have a faith that is true word. Excuse me. You can have you need to have faith that is true to the word of God. There is no contradiction in this book. History has not been able to prove it wrong for all its accurate accounts. Its, its words are easily observable in the world to be true. And science, though it would not claim this, has done more to prove scripture than to discredit it. You can trust that the Holy Spirit, who worked in the lives of men through their pen, wrote the inerrant and perfect word of God using their own personalities their own styles. God used men like he does all throughout history for his goals and accomplishments. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for the training in righteous, righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. When we find ourselves at odd with the world, or just questioning something ourselves, we must turn to the word of God first. That is where our standard for living is. And as we continue, we see Mark 10, 6 through 8. It says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man should leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Now, please bear with me as I skipped a couple verses here. 
And because we will be using them as we look at our next point. But this brings us to our next battle line, which is the battle line for biblical sexuality. Biblical sexuality. So we've talked about the battle for truth. And we've, we've highlighted that if we lose the battle for truth, we risk losing the whole war. We cannot surrender on where we get our standard from. And now we reach one of the biggest battle lines in our culture today. And that is the battle for biblical sexuality. The battle for biblical sexuality. And the first point here is God, God made them male and female. So if you go to Genesis 2... Genesis 2, 7, you'll, you'll see this. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Not evolved. Created. God created all this in six literal days. If you have questions on this point or interested in this, the book Soul of Science is a really good book. Anything out of Answers in Genesis, Ken Ham's ministry, they have amazing stuff. And, and I would go into greater detail, but... Last time I preached, I went over on time, and um, I will not be doing that today, or I strive not to at least. Um, and so God created, and second, notice that it's just male and female, not Middle Eastern male and black female, or white male and Asian female. No, male and female. You see, we have added these distinctions in. We are the ones who have added all this, this race and all these categories to try to fit men. And as we've added that, where has it brought us? Our culture is going crazy over the race issue right now because they can't see that God looks at the inside and man looks at the outside. We need to be like God. We need to look at the inside, the moral of someone's character. Are they saved or are they not? These are the ways we should be looking at people. And if they're not saved, we bring them the gospel. These, this race issue has torn us apart. It's just male and female. That's the way we need to be viewing people. Ethnicity has nothing to do with God's plan. Yes, we have different cultures. And yes, he has established the reason for these different cultures. But when it comes to salvation, when it comes to what matters, God doesn't care. So now, as we still look at this male and female and the battle for our world today, in our world today, the, the, the world would say that somehow God made a mistake. You see, maybe God gave you male parts or female parts, but that may not be what your gender is. Maybe you identify as something else. You see, you get to choose. Hmm. What foolishness. Because obviously God made a mistake. Your assigned gender at birth is what you are. You do not get to choose something different because you did not make yourself. God made you. Transdysphoria is a real mental disorder. And instead of helping these people, our society and culture have tried to bully everyone into convincing them that they are right. On top of that, they've made it, quote, acceptable or a fad 
that more people will try this and launch themselves into sickness of the mind and perversion of sin. Transgenderism is a sin. It is a sexual sin along with the sin of pride. Some people among us actually struggle with this, this gender identity sickness. And for us to allow them as a society to just go on this and get worse and worse is wrong and sinful. We need to not accept what they are doing, but rather point them to Christ, the loving guide, and lovingly guide them in truth, confronting their sin and showing them the God of grace. Doing that, calling sinners to repentance, is illegal in places just up the road like Canada, only a few miles from there, here in Niagara Falls. But the newly minted communist country of Canada has put and enacted Bill C-4, which makes conversion therapy, as they define it, illegal. Now, you might say conversion therapy, isn't that where they hook up electrodes to people and shock them if they have uh, any thoughts of sexual perversion? No, that's been outlawed for a long time. So then what is it? And this is, how, this is what the, the definition of it is in their bill. It says, quote, a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned at birth, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, repress a person's non-cisgender identity or oppress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to them at birth. You cannot, under penalty of jail, try to call a sinner of this particular sin to repentance. Note, it's not illegal to convert in the other direction. Something public schools are trying very hard to do. And we're going to look more at that next week. But this is a battle the Canadian government wants to wage not just against Christians, but against the holy God. And in this bill, it also calls the biblical view of sexuality, or sexuality is observed in nature, God's creation, as a myth. On January 16th, pastors across this nation in Canada rose up to speak about biblical sexuality as to be a shot across the bow to the government from the church, saying, you do not tell us what to teach. You do not tell us that we cannot bring sinners to repentance. We as a church decided that since we were going to talk about this this week in February that we would talk about it today but we support that we support that effort the government does not get to come into our churches and tell us what to teach we battle and strive for the truth so not only did God create us male and female which we've looked at in depth now but he also created sex to be between a male and a female Verses 7 and 8. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Homosexuality is a sin. And for so-called Christian denominations to crumble to culture 
and fear man over God is to damn themselves. And for churches, like just up the road, which many of you have come here from, to marry homosexuals is to damn themselves. Turn with me to Leviticus 18, 22 to 24. It's Leviticus 18, 22 to 24. And it says this. And you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Also, you shall not lie with any animal to be made unclean with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. For what? For it is perversion. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things. For by all these, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. So, so God is saying to his people that that this is being practiced before you, and that's why I'm driving them out. Turn a couple pages to chapter 20. Chapter 20. In verse 13 it says this, If there is a man who lies with a male as, as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltness is upon them. Also, Romans 1 says the same about lesbianism. Now, this is God's standard for sexuality. It is between a male and a female in the marriage covenant. For what God has brought together, man should not separate. And you may say, well, so should we go around killing all the gays and hating them? No. This is God's moral law, which still applies today. But we see that it is mixing here with the judicial law of Israel. And this is the seriousness in which God takes sexual sin and our sexuality. You can observe the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, where you see that the, the sin of sexual perversion spread like, spreads like a cancer throughout their entire town as they're coming from all four corners of the town to try to rape the angels that come. And that cancer leads to God's judgment. This is why God took it so seriously and had such a penalty for committing this act, literally consuming two whole cities with fire and brimstone. And you might say, well, why is God so concerned about sex? Right? Isn't it just two acts or between consenting adults? Isn't it just what people choose to do? That's what our culture says. But God has purpose and design for marriage. And those, that purpose that, in those designs is for procreation, illustration, and sanctification. And the first point is pretty, pretty easy to figure out. We just looked at the fact that God's design for sex is within the marriage covenant. And if you haven't already figured out, sex leads to children. <laughs> And I hope no one in here has not figured that out yet, but if not, you're welcome. When God created man and woman, he told them to be fruitful and multiply. We are to populate the earth and have children. Now, does this mean that couples who do not have children are in sin? Well, obviously that's not true. It's God who brings children. 
But we need to understand that this is part of the marriage design by God. He wants us to be like him and to create life. The second purpose or design for marriage is illustration. And in Ephesians 5, 31 to 33, it says this. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Our marriages are representations of Christ and his church. The church is the bride of Christ. And we in our marriages are supposed to emulate this and show people the beautiful love story between God and us. When people ask us about our marriages and what motivates us in our marriages, we need to say this because we want our marriages to be a symbol to the world of what Christ has done for his people and how his people are to respond. But how do we do this? Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. This is a hard command for most of us to swallow in today's day and age. The world tells us not to be symbols of Christ and his church. Rather, that you, then you should submit to no one, because it's about living your best life now. To tell a woman she should be submissive to her husband is to spread the patriarchy, right? But as we discussed before, what is our standard? Wives should respect their husbands as we respect Christ as the church. Now, does this mean that husbands are, are to be domineering over their wives? That they should order her around and make her their slave? Well, no. Because look, let's look at the command to husbands. We are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And what? Gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. We are to love sacrificially to our wives. Am I, as a husband, an example to my wife of Christ's love? That means that even though I am the head of my house, I humble myself and my desires to do what's best for my family so that they might be what? Sanctified. If I filter every decision through, will this decision bring us to more conformity to the will of the Lord? Why would my wife not want to come along with me? If we are before the throne of grace on our knees in prayer, 
seeking the Lord, then the decisions we make may be hard, but they will be best for our family's sanctification. And that brings us to the third purpose or design of marriage, and that is sanctification. Sanctification, becoming more like Christ. And it's a common saying that my wife makes me a better person. And in the movies, we, we see the guy who's out having fun with the boys on a Friday night. Then he gets married. Now the old ball and chain. And he's a different man. And all his friends laugh at him. And the whole plot of the movie is to get him to go back to his friends and forget the wife that's making him stay at home. <laughs> Marriage does this. We want to spend more time with our spouse and our children. And we don't go out late and do wild things anymore. Why? Because we have children and responsibility. And the world would tell you that this is a terrible thing. That responsibility is not good. Because why? Because you're not having fun. But that's not the design. Our marriages are to make us more like Christ. Growing us to that conformity. We need to have a singular focus in our lives that I strive to be more like Christ. I want to be more like him. And one of the ways this happens in our marriages that I want to focus on is, is in 1 Corinthians 7. If you turn to me to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. Starting in verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of sexual immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say as a concession, not as a command. There are actual licensed marriage counselors out in the world that would tell you, when you go to them, that the reason your marriage is faltering, or the way to revive it is to sleep with other people. <laughs> you need to have a strange sexual encounter to spice things up. And that'll solve your problems, right? You're just bored. But that is not our standard. Because the first command in the Bible is fruitful multiply, we naturally want sex. And because of the temptation that's out there and the desire for sex, Paul is urging those in this chapter to get married if they are burning with passion. He is saying, look, if you're going to be thinking about sex all the time, get married so that we don't fall into sin. You see, sexual sin is rampant in our nation. There are websites where beautiful women strip off their clothes and sexually tempt men. And there are the, and these, <clears throat> excuse me, and there are these same sites for men to women. 
Movies, TV shows, and the like are focused on sexually arousing and tempting us to be unfaithful with our minds, which eventually will lead to unfaithfulness with our bodies. This is a war on marriage, a battle line, and we must hold that line. We must, as Philippians 4 states, focus on the things of Christ and put sin to death. Satan would love nothing more than destroy our marriages. And the world around you and your flesh wants nothing more than to free you and your selfishness and lust. But we preach Christ and we stand on his word. Marriage is extremely important and needs to be something we work on to take care of because it is for the procreation of humanity in the kingdom of God. It's the physical illustration of Christ's love to the church. And lastly, it sanctifies us in our faith, having an outlet for our sexual desires and having an iron sharpening iron effect on our faith. In marriage, it is a man's responsibility to guard, protect, and love his wife. He is the leader. That doesn't mean he gets all the credit but rather that he will be face first before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, giving an account of how he raised his family. That is a scary thought. That one day, I will be prostrate before the throne, giving an account for how I raised my family. Are you addicted to pornography? Are you looking at other women to find pleasure outside of your marriage? Repent. Turn back to your first love that is Christ and your second love which is your wife. Telling my wife that I had failed not to guard myself against porn was one of the hardest things I had to do. I had to admit that to her. But that was a step in sanctifying me. It is a constant and daily battle to remain pure. But that is why we need each other. Wives, are you submissive to what your husband decides in your marriage? In our culture, we have this terrible view of submission. This is not to be a domineering relationship. Or a fearful one. Rather, are you aiding him and loving him through the tough decisions that he must make for your family? And in submitting, it doesn't mean you just take it, but rather, you lovingly come beside us and correct us. Wives, are you harboring disrespect or grudges against your husband? Are you struggling to forgive him? Are you treating him in a way that is disrespectful and then not telling him why. Repent. Talk to your husband plainly. I know for me, I'm not the best at picking up signs. And you can come after the service and talk and ask my wife about that. Coming beside us and lovingly helping us because we are leading the family. That respect, that is what the submission is. It's respect for your husband. The book Love and Respect talks about the circle of love and respect. Men seek respect. They want to be appreciated and respected as the leader of the household or whatever job they are doing. We seek to be more the 
alpha in the relationship where, where, where women seek more love and they want to be loved and cherished for who they are. But withholding respect from your husband and yelling and treating him coldly, the natural reaction for the husband is to withhold love from you. And the same goes in the other direction. The centerpiece of this is humility and forgiveness. We need to hang on to each other tight because the world and our flesh wants to tear us apart. And that means to break the cycle, husbands, it is a command to love your wife. If you are not doing all you can, you are in sin. And wives, by submitting, you are showing respect to your husband. If you are not submitting, you are in sin. And we both need to repent. And even if our needs are not being fulfilled at the time, Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 7, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. I believe this is the same in concept for believing spouses as well. You see, if you follow Christ, if you follow what the Lord says, even if your husband does not, through your sacrifice and following the commands of the Lord, your husband will eventually come around. He will see the dedication to the Lord and he will repent of his sins. Even if it means that you need to get some outside help from a pastor or Christian counselor, that both of you conforming to the image of Christ will push your relationship closer. Now, obviously, the theme, the passage's theme, as we read earlier, when we read the whole passage, is about divorce. And as we dwindle on time, we have not even covered this topic. But I felt that it was important to lay the groundwork for next week when we will discuss both divorce and the attack on our families. But we have to have a biblical view of sexuality and marriage. And our marriages, if we do not have this, will not honor God and could eventually fail. So, in conclusion, we need to run to the scriptures when confronted with the world, with the problems the world brings up. We need to see with our own eyes what the scripture is teaching about the varying topics in our world. We look at what the world says through scripture-colored glasses so that what we do and what we think is based on the word of God. That is our standard. The biblical view on homosexuality and the transgender movement is that they are sin. They are living a life counter to that that God ordained and what he wants. And the legalization of so-called gay marriage is disgusting and a twisted view of an institution God himself ordained. It is not marriage in the eyes of God, for he has a standard. If you were born a male, that's what you are. You do not get to pick and choose what your gender is. God does that. You may struggle with your identity or whatever the case may be. But if you pursue the transsexual or any of the LBGTQ perversions, then you are violating God's law and begging him to pour out his just wrath upon your life. So with all that said, I would like you to turn to 1 Corinthians 6. And you're probably still in 1 Corinthians 7. You flip the page over. 
But I really would like everyone to see this with their own eyes. 1 Corinthians 6. And this is the most important passage when it comes to the debate of biblical sexuality, in my opinion. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Don't, don't take what the world says. Don't be deceived by the pastor who is not faithful to the word of God. For they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither will the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexual, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkard, nor the reviler, nor the swindler will inherit the kingdom of God. And right here, right here is the most important part. And such were some of you. You used to be this. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. We do not look down on those who are enslaved in sin. We are to tell them the truth that they are sinning. But we do it because we care. Because they're going to spend an eternity in hell. But I was on the same path. Had it not been for the grace of God, we could be wrapped up in the same sexual promiscuity. The same desires of our flesh. I would be a drunkard. I would be, I'd be wrapped up in this sexual perversion if it wasn't for God. But God in his great mercy saved me. And by the power of his blood and his sacrifice, he can save you too if you are wrapped in this sin. He can save your family members. He can save your friends. It is not too late. Peter tells us in his epistle that God is patient, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But with that patience, we must remember there will come a day when, like in the days of Noah, that the door is shut. And those whom we love will be judged and cast into hell the punishment that we ourselves deserve. Oh, that, that we would leave here today with a heart that calls people to repentance. That we would be unashamed of the standard God has put before us. And that we would not look down on those who were just like us, enslaved in sin. Rather, we would love them enough to point them to Christ. To point them to Christ and call them to repentance and salvation. Because his salvation is freely offered.
And it is only through Christ alone, through grace alone. Let us pray.